0: Turn with me to John 16, please. John 16. We'll read beginning in verse 23 this morning. John 16. Starting verse 23, reading through to verse 33. In that day, you will not question Me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in My name, He will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in My name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in My name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you... Now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this glorious text. Thank You for the promise and hope that is present. Thank You for all of the many blessings that are ours in Jesus. I pray that You would help us understand this text a little better this morning. You give us eyes to see and ears to hear. pray for those who are currently not Christians that You would Grant them in particular repentance and faith, they would turn from their sin and turn to the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray all this in His name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, in John 16, verses 20 and 20 through 22, the verses leading up to this passage. Jesus said that the events that His disciples were about to experience could be likened to a woman in the midst of childbirth. They would lament. They would sorrow. But then their grief would be turned into joy. The great pain that a woman experiences while going through labor, while difficult in the moment, is eclipsed by the sheer joy that floods over her when her baby has come into the world. So it would be for Jesus' disciples. Jesus' departure from the disciples would cause his disciples to experience untold grief and sorrow. But Jesus would see them again, and then their hearts would rejoice, and they would then become recipients of a joy that could never be taken away from them. So the latter situation would be much better than the former the grief and sorrow would be transformed into something glorious because of the joy that would come through the coming pain. It's wonderful how God provides us on earth illustrations like this, where we're able to make an approximation to a spiritual reality from a physical one. Remember the overall context of this address. Jesus is speaking to His disciples. They had just celebrated Passover. We remember as Jesus' last supper up in the upper room. The setting is most likely, there's some debate as to whether or not these things are said in the upper room or along the path to the Garden of Gethsemane. I kind of uh, go with the latter interpretation that they're traveling on the way. Jesus says, you know, I am the vine, neither the branches. It makes sense that perhaps he was even looking at a vine when he said that as they're walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane. We have several chapters here that we've been spending in John as Jesus is giving one of his last discourses, to these men. He's talking with them en route to His coming arrest. Jesus knows that He has very, very little time left with His disciples and He desires to prepare them for the events that are impending. But they can only handle so much. And they can only understand so much. So He chooses carefully what He says. He provides them with enough information such that after these events transpire they will look back and with the gift of the Holy Spirit, be able to see very clearly what Jesus is talking about, but not too much information right now, since they lack spiritual resources to really understand it, and since they were already on the the brink of being overwhelmed. Jesus is calm, because He knows that His teaching ministry will continue even after He is departed, for He will be sending the Spirit of truth, who will lead His disciples into all truth, This dialogue between Jesus and His disciples is so very tender. You see the strength of Jesus here. You see His resolve. But you also see this wonderful gentleness. He's wise and discerning. He's just and righteous. And as a result, it's humbling to be in Jesus' presence. Yet, simultaneously, it's also comforting to be in Jesus' presence because Jesus is also kind and compassionate and tender-hearted. He's loving and He's forgiving. This should be a surprise to us for Jesus being God in the flesh is perfectly demonstrating the attributes or the perfections of God to everyone around Him. In two 2.9 says that in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. How is it possible for such strength and gentleness to be combined? How is it possible for someone to be just and righteous and discerning and wise, and yet simultaneously compassionate and loving and merciful and forgiving? Well, it's because Jesus is God in the flesh. Repeatedly throughout this text, throughout this discourse, Jesus shows such tenderness with these men. He's told them multiple times, Do not let your hearts be troubled. He calls his men, trust me. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. He promises that he's going to prepare a place for them and that he's going to come back and take them to be with him one day. He says, we're, we're not so. I would have told you. But Jesus concludes this whole dialogue with his disciples. With a call to take courage. It's verse 33 that probably a lot of us are very familiar with, right? These things are spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. Take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus calls his disciples and therefore us to courage. He says, take courage. Take heart. But what is courage? What is the substance of courage? How do we take up courage and put it on? But what process does one who is fearful become courageous? How does someone who is troubled of heart take heart? Right? Jesus has said, don't be troubled of heart, but take heart. Take courage. How does that happen? How do we define courage? Well, Aristotle famously discusses courage, among other virtues that he describes, as a mean, as an average or a middle place, between fear and confidence. He says courage somehow lands in reference to both fear and confidence. Should a man be deficient in confidence and give in to fear, we would call him cowardly. One who lacks confidence and gives in to fear, one who is afraid, we would call that a position of cowardice. But, Should an individual have an excess of fearlessness, we might call him foolish or mad, out of his mind. You see, an excess in confidence might cause him to be a rash individual who's just taking unnecessary risks or things that don't even make any sense. Courage, according to Aristotle, endures fears and responds with confidence in a rational manner for the sake of what is beautiful, (laughs) So there's a pursuit of what is beautiful, there's a realization of genuine fears, and there's a pursuit of that which is good, true, and beautiful, even though one is in the midst of fear, out of a rational decision to pursue that which is good. There are a few situations that Aristotle points out to having the appearance of true courage, but what Aristotle would say is not true courage at all. For example, a soldier can fight out of fear of the penalties that will come to him if he doesn't fight the enemy. In other words, the commander could say, if you run away from this battle, we will put you to death. Now, in this case, the person continues fighting because at least I have a chance at living if I stay in the fight. If I turn around and run, they'll kill me for sure. All that is the balancing of two fears. I fear this one worse than the other fear, so I'll go with the lesser fear, not, not the greater fear, right? And Aristotle will say that's not real courage. You're just balancing between fears. Second situation, people experience in a particular danger might occur, appear courageous, but their knowledge of the particulars results in a lack of fear, perhaps even an overconfidence. If one of us is driving down the road and we saw a high power, you know, lying falling down to the ground and it's spittering about. If any of us were to take it upon ourselves to grab that line and somehow rescue some young child who is about to get hit by it, we'd say that was an act of courage. But if the power company pulls up with their big long poles and they move the, move the line out of the way, people who are very experienced with such things, who have no fear of this thing, that's not such a good example of courage. Similarly, we might argue that a fireman who experiences no tinge of fear upon entering a burning building While it might look like courage, it may in fact not be. If he doesn't think, he will suffer, he has no potential of suffering any harm or being endangered in any way. A third example is anger. Some people do great acts and sometimes considered heroic or courageous acts out of anger. But again, Aristotle would say that that only has the appearance of bravery. An intense charge of adrenaline might elicits some out-of-the-ordinary behavior, but it's not very rational. You are not deciding to pursue that which is good, true, and just, and upright. When a man is angry, he pursues other ends, not that which is good. I'm certain none of you have ever been angry while driving a car before, and have never experienced what might seem like courage, because you no- normally wouldn't be so out out there with your driving. However, at that moment, are you really pursuing what is good, true, and beautiful. A fourth sort of thing that might look like courage but is not is ignorance. Ignorance can bring about an overconfidence because of a lack of knowledge that prevents any feeling of fear. Throw out there an out, outlandish example. Let's say that a man jumped into a pool, and realizes that it's salty, and he starts swimming across the pool and he gets to the other side. And everyone standing by is like, whoa, how did he do that? And the guy's like, well, you know, what's the problem? Well, that pool is maybe filled with sharks, let's say. But he didn't know there were sharks in the tank. And so when he jumped in, he decided he'd just swim across to the other side. Other people looking in might say, wow, what a courageous act. But if he isn't aware of the danger below, he's not courageous. He's a fool, right? He's ignorant. That's not true courage. We might add that someone is um, under the influence of substances. If they're drunk, for example, again, those inhibitions that now that are lowered as a result of the drunken state might cause someone to act in ways that they otherwise wouldn't. But again, that's not a rational decision to pursue what is beautiful despite the dangers. What do we see in common with all of these kind of working through what is courage? Well, I think if you combine all of these thoughts together and we try to define what is courage, courage involves a rational decision to pursue that which is good while knowing the dangers that are associated Feeling reasonable fears regarding those dangers, but nonetheless chasing what is good. Right? So there has to be some experience of fear. Now you could say somebody could do something good, but we just wouldn't call it courageous if there is no fear. What's so interesting is that person who is truly courageous is the one who feels intense fear because of real and present danger. But they pursue what is good anyway. You see, if there's no fear... They might do something good, but we wouldn't call it courageous. So what is a Christian's courage? At minimum, a Christian's courage involves three facets that I want to walk through with you this morning. Three facets of a Christian's courage. The first is that a Christian is aware of the danger. Point number one. A Christian is aware of the danger. Jesus says in verse 33, in this world you have tribulation. Greek word there, flipsis. Flipsis. It, it means oppressing. Oppressing. It can be utilized, it's utilized sometimes in the New Testament to refer to like end times, eschatological punishments. Supreme tribulations. But the word is also used in the New Testament to describe persecutions that come to Christians. For the fact that they are Christians. So those are the two things I want to point out quickly for a Christian. Because we know we are aware of the danger. A Christian's courage is not something where we just pretend that there are no problems. Pretend there is no tribulation. Think you know, on positive thoughts and never imagine that there could be anything evil that might beset us. There are two reasons for which we ought to expect difficulty. That we ought to expect flipsis. Pressure pressing. The first is because we live in a fallen world. There's a danger associated with living in a fallen world. Now, there was not a danger associated with living in the Garden of Eden before the fall, right? But there is a danger associated with living in a fallen world. There will be pains which everyone experiences due to living in a fallen world, which is itself to come under judgment. And so we must not be ignorant or unrealistic in our understanding of the world. We ought not set unrealistic expectations regarding the difficulties that we will face. This is one of the problems, among many, that the health and wealth gospel has, right? They set up unrealistic expectations regarding the world that we live in. And while we're looking forward to the day when God sets up the new heavens and new earth, we're not there yet. This world has troubles. There are difficulties that all of us will come in contact with. Some of us have dealt with horrible diseases within either our own bodies or within the bodies of our family or friends or loved ones. And certainly we've had moments like, why Lord? Why me? Why them? Why is this happening? And sometimes the answer truly is, we live in a fallen world. And there is sin and sickness and disease and difficulty and trial that is common to the human experience what it reminds us is this is not our home. That while God created a good world, it has been subjected to corruption due to sin. Due to the fall. We must take the world as it is, created good by God, but fallen. And understand that it is nothing but the sheer grace and mercy of God that this world is not worse than it is. We often think of all the horrible things within the world, but have you ever been befuddled by how many good things are present in the world? Sometimes we ought to flip that around a little bit and go, you know, yeah, maybe I've been diagnosed with cancer, but I wasn't—I, you know, I wouldn't be guaranteed this many years of life. Thank you, Lord, for what You have given me. Oftentimes we think we're owed something more than what we've been given. Realize it is nothing but the sheer grace and mercy of God that the world is not a whole lot worse than it is right now. So there's the danger of living in a fallen world. But there's also, for us as Christians, that danger is associated with all people. But there's a danger particular to Christians. And that is the danger of living as a Christian in a fallen world, right? All people living in a fallen world will see danger, but there's a particular danger that comes to Christians who live in a fallen world. There will be pains which Christians experience particularly because we have defected from the fallen world and we have pursued Jesus. All those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. We have not been promised no trouble. Quite the contrary, we've been guaranteed that we'll see trouble. Philippians 1:29. To you has been granted not only to believe in His name, but also to suffer for His sake. It has been given to you as a Christian. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5: Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. Now, recognize people do evil and mean things for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes they do it because for whatever reason, they just don't like you. And they will treat you horribly and bully you and make fun of you. But here Jesus says there's a particular sort of blessing attended to those who get that kind of persecution because of Jesus. Because they see a likeness of Jesus in your life. And as a result, the world comes after you. The Christian is not one who sticks his head in the sand and pretends that there's no difficulties. We don't grow numb to sorrow or unfeeling to pain. The Bible doesn't say, just pretend it's not there. That's not the biblical description of how we deal with suffering and pain. It is real, and the Bible presents a real world you as it relates to pain and sorrow and difficulties. And provides us with a context for understanding sorrow and difficulty and pain. And also a wonderful hope that one day it will be dealt with. Right? As a matter of fact, I I wonder about atheists, how they interact with pain. Now, atheists love to bring up this subject of pain for Christians do they think that somehow it speaks against God. But my question for them is, why do you even care? I mean, if pain, if there is no God at all, if everything's just a chance, you know, everything's just a, a materialistic chance, then why are you objecting to it? What's there to object to? Where do you feel this sense of justice or this feeling that there's something wrong? Where does that come from? You see, for us as Christians, we know there's something wrong. It's called sin. And the good news is that one day God will deal with it. Ultimately and finally. The groundwork for that has already been laid through his son. 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. I wonder how many times we need to remind ourselves of that. Sometimes we forget it, right? It's like, why are they being so mean to me? (laughs) It's like, don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. The world being a hateful place hates people in general. But certainly if you live for the Lord, it will hate you with a greater intensity. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes to you for your testing, as though some strange thing was happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. Do not be surprised. So the first element of this idea of courage is knowing that as a Christian we are aware of the danger. Both the danger of living in a fallen world and the danger of living as a Christian in a fallen world. And may all those trials just drive us ever nearer to Jesus. Amidst all the waves and trials and difficulties may cause us to cling to what is the only anchor of our soul, Jesus. So Christian courage knows trials and tribulations and difficulties and troubles. But Christian courage finds peace and takes up courage in at least two assurances. And these are my other two points. There's at least two Two sources of confidence. So as I said, courage there has to be fear. So there is real trouble, and there is genuine fear associated with those troubles. But, there is at least two confidences that a Christian has that allows them to pursue what is good, true, and beautiful in the midst of the fears and troubles of this world. The first, or point number two, is that a Christian is confident of God's goodness. A Christian is confident... Of God's goodness. And I kind of want to break this into two, two big categories. A lot of systematic theology, you talk about who is God. There's usually kind of two big categories you try to group everything else about God into. The one is God's greatness, and the other is God's goodness. So let's first of all talk about the greatness of God, our Father's greatness. How do we have courage in the midst of these trials and difficulties and fears? We trust the sovereign God. That's how we have courage. We trust the one who is in charge. Now, the disciples have had questions and inquiries throughout this entire dialogue. They've asked questions like, where are you going, Jesus? When is this happening, Jesus? How can we know the way to go with you, Jesus? Show us the Father, Jesus. How long is a little while, Jesus? They've got all these questions, and Jesus keeps answering, walking through them, and redirecting them, and all the rest. But Jesus says, in a little while, all those questions are going to vanish. There's a whole lot of answers coming your way. Jesus has such a calmness. Imagine, this is the night. This is the very night in which he's about to be arrested. This is the very night in which he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over to Roman authorities, and he shows such a coolness and confidence in his interaction with these men. Why? Because Jesus knew everything was going according to God the Father's plan. He trusted in his sovereign Father. He knew that everything was happening exactly as it was supposed to. He knew that He was about to depart from the world and to return to His Father. Jesus then says that the soon-to-transpire events are actually going to leave His disciples in a better position. He says, you will now have direct and confident access to God the Father because of what I'm about to do. Let me pause there for just a minute. How often do we think about what a great privilege and honor it is to be able to talk to God? How often do we ponder that? If you wanted an audience of the President of the United States, how many people do you think you would have to go through to even have the question listened to and considered? How many people do you think it would require for you to ask for an audience with the President of the United States? How many of you think if you even went through all of that, you'd actually be granted an audience with the President of the United States? And if you were, how many of you think you'd be given a second opportunity, or a third opportunity, or a fourth opportunity, or hey, let's set up a daily meeting, Mr. President? How many of us are gonna be afforded that? Or you know what, every hour would be actually more my taste, it would be great if we could talk. How how many of us would be granted such a thing? Sometimes you find this even within corporations, right? I mean, how many of you, if you're at a big company, have direct access to the CEO of the company? Some I mean, people be like, laugh at that. You know, like, I have to go through like 18 people to get to that guy. And even then, I probably wouldn't get an audience with him, right? Jesus says, as a result of what he's about to do, how, and here's the question, how much greater is God that we can enter into his presence? This question is even asked in the Old Testament, you know, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can approach God? Who can come up to God with requests and petitions and rejoicings? Who can enter into his presence? And the answer is the one who is cleansed of sin, the one who has been made holy. But as soon as you hear that answer, you're just like, ouch, because I don't qualify. How can I approach God? I'm a sinner and he's holy. Holy. Consider the Old Testament structure, even the temple, right? Several different outer courts, Gentiles on the far outside, Jewish women allowed to come in a little bit closer, Jewish men a little bit closer, the high, no, the priests, a step closer to the holy place, and then there is the Holy of Holies, where the high priest enters once a year. Sin has separated man from holy God. But marvelously, through the work of Jesus... We read about this in the end of Matthew. When Jesus is crucified and dies, and His blood is shed, the veil in the temple tears from top to bottom. And now access is given to all who are in Christ to come boldly into God's presence, to have confident, direct access to God. It's not because of who we are or what we've done, but because of who Jesus is and what He has done on our behalf. Jesus explains, you have direct access to God the Father in my name, and God will receive you. And you don't need to go through rituals, and you don't need any intermediaries, no petitioning of saints or Mary or any of these things. You personally have direct communion with God through Jesus Christ. John MacArthur says it well. One of the horrendous falsehoods of the Roman Catholic Church is that God is indifferent and harsh, Jesus is committed to justice, But Mary is compassionate, as are the lesser saints. Thus, an appeal to them is best. That is a lie. Since believers have direct access to their Father, who loves them because they are in Jesus Christ, who also loves them perfectly. I love what Jesus says here. He says, you can go right to your Heavenly Father, right to Him, because of what I've done. Because of what I've done, you can go right to God your Father directly. So this soon coming uh, sorrow will be followed by the joy of unhindered and free access to God the Father. How do we have confidence? Because we know at any moment of any day, we can have a direct relationship and communion with God our Father. We now bring requests directly to the Father in Jesus' name. By the way, our practice of praying in Jesus name, we're saying those words at the end of prayers is not just some perfunctory ritual that we go through. And it's not some magical mantra like if you don't say in Jesus name, then the prayer isn't valid. It's not something like that. Why? Why do we say this? Why do we say I pray this in Jesus name? Well, certainly I mean, there's at least two aspects to it that are helpful to me. Number one. It reminds me that the only reason I can be so bold in my approach to my Father is because of what Jesus did for me. I can do this not because I'm perfect, not because I'm holy. I'm a sinner saved totally and utterly by grace. The only reason I can bring these things is because of what Jesus did on my behalf. But the second thing that it reminds me of is if I now come to my Father because of what Jesus has done, then I want my request be, to be in keeping with His character and His nature and what He desires. If I was to come up to someone, and let's say I came up to Seth and I said, Seth, in the name of Christian, I want you to do this. Now, if it was something, when I say that to, to Seth, you know, he might shake his head and think it's strange, which it is, but, but if I was to say that to him, if what I then asked Seth to do was not in keeping with what Christian was like, then Seth would laugh at me, right? He'd be like, there's no like, there's no way Christian has told you to tell me this. At least, hopefully, that's what he would do, right? There's no way that Christian would ask you to tell me to do this. Similarly, when we come to our Father, because of what Jesus has done... And we pray in His name. We pray in keeping with the priorities that He has. We seek out what He would desire. We seek that He be glorified. We seek that His kingdom be advanced. And what's so beautiful is that Jesus says, you're going to grow in boldness and confidence in bringing requests unto the Father because the Spirit of truth who I'm sending to you is going to give you understanding of what I taught you. So you're going to know My will. You're going to know what it is that I desire all of these things are going to become clearer and clearer to you so one of the reasons why we have confidence is because our god our father is great but he's not only great he's not only all powerful and all knowing and omnipresent and all of these things it's not that he's just it's not only that he's great which he is but it's also that he is good our father is great but our father is also good we trust our sovereign God, but we also trust our loving, heavenly Father. If someone has power over your life, and you know at that moment they could kill you or not, and it would be completely just for them to do so, we would tower in such a one's presence, right? It would be right for us to exhibit fear. It would be appropriate. But we wouldn't adore or cherish one who just flippantly... Engaged in such a practice. We cherish and adore those who use power for good. What motivated God to grant this access? Why is He allowing us this access right to Him? Jesus tells us it's because the Father Himself loves you. The Father Himself loves you. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates His own love toward us. In the while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I do believe that God, in some sense, loves the whole world, indiscriminate, all people. I believe He does, in some sense, love everyone. But there is a special sense of God's love for those whom He has saved. A special love that He has for those who believe in and love His Son. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Anytime a Christian might have caused to doubt the love of God, may I just dearly implore you, think of the cross. Anytime you question it, you look to Jesus, God has demonstrated publicly forever how much He loves His children. He gave up His own Son on their behalf. And Jesus says that God the Father not only loves to listen to you, but He is delighted to answer your prayers. Why? That your joy may be made full. God is delighted to listen and answer that our joy might be made full. This completed joy comes out of the context of a praying life. J.C. Rowell says, Of all the lists of Christian duties, there is none to which there is such abounding encouragement as prayer. He's saying, Of all the things that we're called to engage in, he says, You can't find anything that's called out for as much as prayer is. Prayer is repeatedly, thoroughly throughout the Scriptures, encouraged that we engage in. He says, It's a duty which concerns all high and low, rich and poor, learned and unlearned. All cannot read, all cannot hear, all cannot sing. But all who have the spirit of adoption can pray. God delights to answer the prayers of his children. He loves to give good gifts to his children. Jesus even used that analogy, right? If you, being evil as earthly fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more your heavenly father delights to give good gifts to his children? So, a Christian is confident of God's love. He's confident in God's goodness. But the other thing, the other source of confidence, and point number three, is a Christian is confident in Jesus' victory. A Christian is confident in Jesus' victory. Now, Jesus says things are becoming more and more clear to you. He tells them that they're about to receive more straightforward teaching, the figures of speech are soon to become clear. The disciples' vision is going to come into focus as they're granted eyes to see and ears to hear, as the Holy Spirit is granted unto them. So much of what Jesus has been talking about is dependent upon what is about to happen. His death, His burial, and His resurrection, and then His ascension to the Father, and with it then the blessed arrival of the giving of the Holy Spirit, is going to connect all of these dots We even see a marked change in which the Bible is written. Consider this. Reading the Gospels versus reading Romans. Or reading 1 Peter. Reading 1 Timothy. All the epistles of the New Testament, even the book of Acts, which is more narrative, there is a much more straightforward form in which it takes. You read Jesus' words in the Gospels, There's a lot of parables and figurative language, right? But all of a sudden in the New Testament now, there's like clarity about everything that was said. And sometimes I think we take this for granted because we now live in a day where we have the entire Bible. We can study it and consider it and consider passages versus other passages. So when we see Jesus telling a parable, we're like, oh, you know, parable of the sower. Yeah, 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 I know what that's all about, you know. (laughs) There's all these examples of non-true hearers, non-true converts, and then you've got the one that's true, that bears various amounts of fruit. The fruit-bearing one is the true convert. We make those kinds of statements, and Jesus gives some explanation of that parable in particular to his disciples. But understand that we do it in light of fuller revelation. We've been granted those connections. And even as these Gospels are written, you see those little parentheticals I talked about last week, right? Where all of a sudden John goes, Jesus said this because later on his disciples would understand what he was saying there, but they didn't understand at the time. So Jesus is saying, There's more and more clarity coming to you. Things are becoming more and more clear. And it's at this moment in verse twenty nine of John sixteen the disciples tell Jesus, Now you're talking plainly. Now we've got it. Now we understand. It's like it's like they're getting a glimpse of what's about to happen, and they're like, Oh yeah, we got it. We figured this out, Jesus. We know that you came from God. Your knowledge proves it yet again. By the way, this is a common syllogism in the New Testament. It goes like this. Only God is omniscient. Jesus has just demonstrated omniscience. Therefore, Jesus is God. Right? So, God is omniscient. Only God is omniscient. Jesus is omniscient. Therefore, Jesus is God. That's how the syllogism goes. Nathaniel says that in John 1.46. Peter says it in Matthew 16.16. Thomas says it in... Uh, John 20, verse 28, all arguing along these kind of lines. Only God is omniscient, you're omniscient. How do you know these things unless you must be God? The disciples say, You have proven who you are yet again. Not only, not merely by the way you answer questions, but by the fact that you don't even have to have questions asked you. What they're saying here is what Jesus does repeatedly He anticipates their questions. He knows what they're thinking, and he responds to what they're thinking. So they're saying to him, we know that you know all things, because we don't even have to ask you a question, and you're already answering them. By the way, that's a mark of a great teacher. Right? A great teacher anticipates questions. A great teacher is able to consider an audience, and from this vantage point go, these are the kinds of questions they would ask. <laughs> so I'm going to answer those questions as we go. Now, I make attempts at that, but I'm definitely not a great teacher. Jesus is the greatest teacher, right? Right? He was able to anticipate. Miraculously knew what was in their thoughts and responding to the thoughts. And sometimes go, we know who you are. We absolutely know you came from the Father. We've got it. We've got it. We get this. But then Jesus gives them a caution. I said that there's kind of a pendulum thing here. Like if you give in to fear, then that's cowardice. But if you become overconfident, then that's some sort of rashness or foolishness or foolhardiness or something of that nature. Disciples think they understand what Jesus is talking about, yet Jesus once again corrects them. He says to them, look at it in verse 31, Do you now believe? Do you now believe? There's irony evident in Jesus' repetition of their words. If you really know what you think you know, then it will be seen shortly in how you're going to respond to coming events. If you really believe, if you really know what I'm talking about here, are you so sure about that? Jesus is saying, Are you so sure you've got this all locked up? In a moment, your belief and faith are going to be put to the test. And by the way, guys, it's going to be found wanting. He says to them, verse 32 Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. Do you really have this figured out? Are you really men of courage? Are you really going to be able to respond rightly in this coming test? I mean, you rightly agree that I came from the Father. That's right. But the other part of what I said is, I came from the Father, and behold, again, I'm going back to the Father. And when I go back to the Father, how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond then? And Jesus says, I can tell you how you're going to respond. You're all going to abandon me. You're all going to run off to your own homes. I believe these men were honestly proclaiming what they felt but they did not rightly know themselves. They felt they were stronger than they were. I think this is a marvelous reminder to us as a church that the church itself was not founded on stalwart men that never had any difficulties or fears or problems. The church is founded on Jesus. And then the church is an expression of what He can do through weak and frail vessels. What can Jesus do through men who are frail and faulty, and error-prone, and sinful, and hard-headed, and prideful, and arrogant, and you add in whatever else you are. I believe these men honestly were proclaiming what they felt, but they didn't rightly understand who they were. They felt they were stronger than they really were. This is where the secret of you know, true spiritual maturity is humility. It's forsaking trust in yourself. Yet Jesus tells them, I won't utterly cast you off. He does at least two things in these words. He he tells them to beware of overconfidence. Is your faith really ready for what's ahead of you? But then He also doesn't want them to despair. He's even after they desert, even when they all leave them, don't worry guys, I'm still going to win. My victory isn't dependent upon how wonderfully faithful you guys are. Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord that God's victory is not dependent on my faithfulness. Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, Jesus will be victorious. Things will get worse before they get better, but the worsening will lead to great good. In fact, Jesus' departure and seeming defeat would actually be his triumph. It would actually be his victory. It would actually be his conquest. At the moment in which it seems like all is lost, everything everything is actually won. And the knowledge that their Savior lives and will return will grant these disciples a whole new boldness and courage amidst life's difficulties. You see, the disciples at that moment already knew that God is good, but now they had the most tangible expression of His love and goodness and His victory as Jesus would go to the cross, be buried, and then rise again from the grave. Jesus says, even though you desert me, my Father won't desert me. My Father will be with me even through these tough moments. We might make one crucial exception to that statement. And that is at the point of propitiation. The point at which the Son was made to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 When the Father would pour out His wrath against His own Son. Leading Jesus to cry from a quotation from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? At that moment, as God the Father pours out His wrath upon His Son, because His Son has now been made to be the sin of all those who would ever believe in Jesus, God pours out His wrath upon His Son. But even having done that, Jesus having appeased that wrath, propitiated that wrath, God the Father would not ultimately abandon His Son. Acts 2.24, Peter explains, God raised Him up again! putting an end to the agony of death, which is is impossible for Him to be held in its power. And then He quotes from Psalm 16, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You see, the temporary stumbling of the disciples would be followed by restoration, for Jesus wouldn't abandon them. And the disciples could even look back on this interaction and go, Jesus knew what we were going to do before we did it. And He still loved us. He still died for us. He bids His disciples to take heart, to be courageous. Verse 33, For I have overcome the world. Not we have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Jesus says, look to Me. I've overcome it. That's how you find courage. You look to Me. I'm victorious. You see, it's not about the champion in Me or in you. It's the champion outside of all of us that is Jesus. It's like David and Goliath, right? David, in a sense, is a... Christological picture. He goes down, and when he defeats Goliath, all of Israel wins. Right? The purpose of that story is that Israel needed a champion, someone to defeat the troubles and trials and difficulties before them. They couldn't handle Goliath. And in a much bigger way, none of us is fit to handle sin or death or Satan. Satan. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Jesus defeated Satan and sin and the grave. This is why I love the nature of the Oak Ridge Christian Academy golf tournament. It's a scramble. I can be the absolute worst player on my team, which I am. I slice and hook and I put the ball everywhere but towards the hole. But all I need is one champion on the team. Just one man. Give me one man who knows how to play golf. The rest of us will be a bunch of jokers. That's it. But if there's one man who is able to play the game of golf and put the ball into the hole, we win! The team wins! The lousiest player could get a trophy. That's how it is for us. It's not about how great the team is. It's about the strength of the champion. It's about Jesus. And so Jesus says... In this world you have trouble, but in me you have peace. Take heart, take courage, look to me, I'm the champion. Now all these things, Romans 8, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. I'm convinced neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One principle brings about two results. What happens to your master will happen to you. That's the principle. What happens to your master will happen to you. So here's the first result. You will be persecuted. You will suffer. Jesus suffered. You will suffer. But here's result number two. You will overcome because He overcame. You will conquer because He conquered. I must close with a look at the blessed transformation of the Apostle Peter. Now, Jesus has just said in this text, all of you guys are going to desert me. But remember, prior to this occasion, Jesus has already looked at Peter directly and told him, you're going to deny me three times. Three times. You're going to deny me this very night. And Peter's like,
1: no, Lord,
0: it's not me. You're going to deny me, Peter. And he does. He does. What do you call that when he denies that he's a disciple of Jesus even to a little slave girl? Is that courage? We would call that cowardice, right? But then we read this in Acts 4. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man was made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Do you hear it? Do you see any hesitation in his testimony? He is the stone which the re- was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is no salvation in anyone else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Hallelujah. And then we get this little narrative note. And it is just beautiful. This is what Jesus does in the life of someone who is utterly submitted to Him. Now, as they observed The confidence, the courage, the bravery of Peter and John, and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank You so much for Your marvelous Word. The truth is all of us are a bunch of weak cowards. We would fall over should the wind gently blow upon us. We are weak and frail vessels. And the only hope we have to exhibit true Christian courage is that we recognize our weakness and frailty That we remember Your goodness and we look to the champion, Jesus, who did what none of us can. I pray, Lord, that You would make that all the more real to us today. That we would stop trusting in ourselves. That we would stop ignoring troubles and difficulties. That we would face them head on, but not in our strength, but in Yours. May You be honored, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.